for the invitation to be here and also send along my sympathies in this uh, difficult time. I want to go back 25 years to a phone call I got from Dr. Robert McCormick Adams. Now, I knew Dr. Adams as one of the premier anthropologists in the world, but he wasn't calling me in that regard. He was the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. And Dr. Adams told me about this brand new museum that was going to begin here. It was called the National Museum of the American Indian. And he said, this wonderful collection of 800,000 artifacts is coming from New York City, and it's going to be part of the Smithsonian. Mandated by law, most of the board of that new Smithsonian Museum will be Native American. He said, but I think it's important that an anthropological voice be there as well. Would you be willing to become a founding trustee of the National Museum of the American Indian? I'd been working as a curator of anthropology for a long time and asked him if he thought it was appropriate that we have a trustee who was also a curator at another museum in New York. He said, yeah. And I said, does that make me the token anthropologist on the Indian board? And he said, yeah, pretty much. And he said, and fasten your seatbelts because it's going to be a fun ride. This will be a museum different. Now that phrase, museum different, caught on in the founding of this institution. Our first task as board was to find a director who would come in and build a museum and define a definition of the museum different. It didn't take long to find that Rick West was the right person for the job. So when Rick first addressed the board, the obvious question came up, different from what? And Rick told a story. He said that when he was a kid, he was traveling with his father. Uh, Richard West Sr. was a distinguished Southern uh, Cherokee painter. And Rick had grown up in Muskogee, in that family. They went to New York City. And as it turned out, they went to the museum where I've worked for 40 years, the American Museum of Natural History. And Rick said, we went into that place and saw this incredible collection of American Indian artifacts, one of the very best in the world. And then he said, we went over and we looked at the dinosaurs and the dinosaur eggs and all the other fossils that were there. That's the best collection in the world. And as they were leaving, a young Rick turned to his father and said, why do they have Indians grouped in with the dinosaurs and the fossils? And his father said, they must think we're extinct too. Rick told us that story and said, if I'm asked what the museum different is all about, it's different from that. It's different from natural history. It's different from anthropology. Those museums, in his words, are the final, ugly, unadorned edge of manifest destiny. Tough words. He also quoted probably the most influential anthropologist of the 20th century, Albert Kroeber, who said, the last real California Indian died in 1849. I was, I was getting a little uncomfortable at this point and began to worry what is this connection, at least in Rick's mind, and it, it turned out in the rest of the board's mind as well, between manifest destiny, 
colonialism, natural history, anthropology, and by extension, me, the token anthropologist on the board. Well, as we look back, as I look back, in American history, you could pretty much make the pretty obvious when colonialism started here if you discount the Viking presence a thousand years ago, which did really happen. Colonialism started here when a very lost Spanish explorer came across on the shores of a place that was locally called Guanahani that he changed the name to San Salvador. He took possession, he changed the names, he took up a collection, sending several Guanahanes and other people from the Caribbean back to Europe to demonstrate his claim. Those three processes, finders, keepers, the name game, and taking up a collection would be replayed 300 years later. We all know Thomas Jefferson as the third president of the United States. He's also the first scientific archaeologist in this country. He dug a burial mound on his plantation in Virginia, knowing full well that native groups were still using that as a sacred place. His scientific description was so good that I still use it in my textbooks. But beyond that, Jefferson sent out the Lewis and Clark expedition after the Louisiana Purchase to explore the Trans-Mississippian West. The parallels with Columbus are uncanny. Both of them were seeking an inland passage, a way to get to China. Both of them were taking possession of a new land. Lewis and Clark literally carried with them a branding iron to put on trees, property of the US government. Both of them played the name game. Lewis and Clark were told, name everything and map it. If the French have a name on it, respect it. If the Indian people have a name on it, changing to some, change it to something that's really American and bring home a collection. Jefferson was a fanatic on studying Native American languages and archaeology and the rest. So when Lewis and Clark came back, they had an amazing amount of booty. They had plants, they had animals, they had fossils, and they had all sorts of American Indian artifacts that they brought back with them. Many of those ended up in the antechamber of Monticello, Jefferson's mansion. He arranged them all very carefully, so you'd have a mammoth tusk, and elk, huge elk antlers over here, and a Mandan war shirt over here, uh, and, a and a pipe from the west northwest coast. Because in Jefferson's mind, that was what natural history is about. It's the natural history of this country. And after all, Americans aren't, American Indians are not really that different than the mammoths and the mastodons in his mind. This is the first natural history museum in this country, created by our third president. Now there's a linkage between certainly manifest destiny and colonialism with a little bit of grave robbing thrown in. It also kicked off the golden age of the museums in this country, 1840. The Smithsonian materializes a little bit later. My museum in New York, 1869. Harvard gets a museum. The Field Museum uh, is established after the World's Columbian Exposition. Each one of those museums is tasked with pretty much the same thing. Let's build up a collection, let's show it to the public, and let's do research. As we've heard already, so much of 19th century anthropology looked at 
the history of the world, the human history, through racial eyes. It was a biolization of human history. And of course, if you're going to do that through biology, you do that by reading skulls. So each of the major museums in the 19th century, natural history museums, were building these skull libraries. And there, was, there weren't enough skulls to go around. A huge amount of competition, the skull wars. Museums competing with each other to build a better collection. Louis Agassiz, who was running the Harvard Museum at the time, arguably the most famous scientist in the world, looked at it a different way. As the battlefield shifted from the Civil War to the American West, he saw that as an incredible waste of natural history specimens. Dead Indians lying all over the battlefields when they should be collected and put in the skull libraries of the major natural history museums. So he worked out a deal. With the, uh, with the Secretary of War to collect a lot of those battlefield remains, send them to the War Museum here in Washington, and ultimately they ended up in the Smithsonian Institution. There's kind of a connection with what I do. Uh, those are anthropology museums. Those are human skull collections. Those existed in all the museums that I had been working in. One of the participants in the Skull Wars was named Franz Boas. He was a German immigrant with a PhD in physics. He came to America to do something called anthropology. He had a prickly personality and couldn't get a job, so he had to support himself. He went to the northwest coast uh, of Canada and collected anthropological songs and tales and legends, and he supported himself by digging up graves because he could support his trip $5 for a skull, $15 for a complete specimen. Ten years after that, Franz Boas was hired by my museum in New York to define anthropology, which he did. He moved on to Columbia University. His most famous student was Margaret Mead, but his most influential student was Albert Krober, the same Krober who said the last real California Indian died in 1849. Alfred Krober is my intellectual grandfather. Krober had lots of students, and I studied under some of those students when I was in school. And when I came to graduate school, I did because I had a passion about American Indians. I wanted, I thought, Native people had been screwed by American history, and I wanted to try to do something about it. So what I was told is if I go and study anthropology, I can become the expert in American history and culture. I was told that all the real Indians were gone, they'd turn into cowboys. And if anybody's going to save American Indian history, it's going to be people like me. Study real hard, take vows of academic poverty, and you'll be the person who writes the books and appears in court cases to help with land claims and the rest of it. You'll show up and give the lectures and I was told, if Indian people ever care about their history, they can come to you and ask about it. I believed it. Krober had said it. My professors had said it. So I studied real hard. We idolized Krober. All of us grew beards. Krober had a great beard. And most of it was about the guys. We wanted to be the next Krober. Well, I worked hard, and I got a good job. And that call from Secretary Adams was reinforcing exactly that. Here is my chance to come to the Smithsonian 
be a founding trustee of this institution, and finally do something to help American Indians with their history. I couldn't understand why, at my first board meeting, we were in David Rockefeller's office and we were heading down to the customs house. And we all got in a taxi cab. And I looked, and all the other board members who were in there were native, but that's not surprising. Almost everybody was on that board. But they were surprised to see me. And someone passed a, pe a pack of pell-mell cigarettes around that New York taxi cab. And they all lit up, and they all blew smoke in my face. And they said, this is an Indian cab. You know, we invented tobacco. You're not going to be comfortable here. We don't need anthropologists to tell us our story. And I kind of sat up straight and thought, well, just what I heard. They don't know anything about their history, and when they're ready, I'd be glad to help them out with it. So then we had another board meeting a little further along, and we were debating some fine point about what this outfit's going to look like. And a not-so-subtle voice came from one of the other board members. And she said, someone in this room needs to take Indian 101. And I knew full well who she was talking about. So as time went on, I tried to pay attention. And I tried to start, and I began to see myself more as a student rather than as a professor. I started to kind of see why many people in that room, the board of the Museum Different, could see what Rick West had called the final ugly edge of manifest destiny in what I was doing, in what anthropologists were doing, in what natural history museums were doing. Their point was, after all these decades of warfare and disease, the final coup de grace were the anthropologists coming and taking away what was left of their material culture to the big time museums of the East. I could see why that might bother them. So we began working on the main objective of this National Museum of the American Indian. The primary objective, the way it evolved, was basically the, to change the way that non-Indian people, like me, viewed Indian people and Indian culture. This raised numbers of issues. We need this museum, the museum different, was going to stop dealing with Indians as somehow vestigial as frozen in time, as rapidly passing somewhere into the historical beyond. They're going to stop showing Indians as not having any capacity to survive or to change. The museum different is going to stop the kind of phony objectivity, what I came to call physics envy, that anthropologists did in terms of turning native people into specimens to be displayed almost like subhuman fossils. The Museum Different was going to denounce the complete vesting of their story in people like me, in the natural historians and the anthropologists, and instead involve native communities in a significant way. So in other words, the National Museum of the American Indian was not about dead and dying people. It was not about cultures falling off the stage of history. It was about the here 
and it was about the now. And particularly, what came out in those discussions was to put the lie once and for all to that notion of the American melting pot. As Rick West put it, we've got to stop looking at American culture as just some kind of common soup. He called it cultural gruel, tasteless and gray. There was nothing tasteless and gray about the parade that opened this institution in 2004. Something like 25,000 Native American people from North and South America came to the mall and walked to this very place to open these doors. It was the most colorful thing I've ever seen. And their message was simple. This is the largest gathering of American Indian communities ever. And it's triggered by the opening of the National Museum of the American Indian. Science says there are more Indians in this country today than there were when Columbus arrived. But that parade made the point in crystal clear terms. So the question is, how is this museum going about the notion of decolonizing our perceptions in this country of American Indians? We can see the overtones of manifest destiny, but how do you decolonize things? This museum did it in several fairly simple ways. First, by injecting the first person Indian voice in the halls that stand out here beyond these doors. Those halls are created not by people who are informants, who are answering to the authority of anthropology, Instead, these are genuine participants in the scholarly process and the living culture. It's an explicit recognition that these are experts in their own culture, whether anthropologists like me recognize it or not. These halls have fundamentally changed the way in which museums view and present the humanities of Indian people. This world is faced with a huge problem of declining biodiversity. But that's not happening with Native American people. We still have the cultural diversity and natural history museums tend to confuse biodiversity with cultural diversity. That confusion will not happen in the halls of this museum. So there's a curatorial liberation that's going on here. We've got 800,000 objects in the collection, but they're not presented as just objects. They're presented as departure points for themes and ideas, all in a new living and social space. To use the term that got kicked around the boardroom a lot, this is the anti-museum, and it's deliberately so. Secretary Adams spent a lot of time working with us on these concepts. His take reinforced the same thing. Dr. Adams, Secretary Adams, was also an anthropologist. And he also recognized the need to change museums from being a temple, a place of collectibles that was ruled by a superior and self-ruling priesthood. That's the natural historians. That's the anthropologist. That's me. Today, it's a forum. It's a place that's not devoted to maintaining the status quo in what we think, but rather opening up a multicultural conversation 
about what really is. That was the message to Indian country that created the turnout for that parade. And every, it continues to be the message as people come to the American public as they walk inside the door. This museum had another important function, anthropology. Rick West tackled this head on. When he defined the museum different as different from anthropology museums, he took it up with anthropologists. He came to one of the national meetings of the American Anthropological Association and made a presentation. He knew he was walking into the valley of the shadow of evil, but he called it the new inclusiveness. He started out by conceding the rocky road that we'd all been over. He talked about the discourse probably creating more heat than light. And he lauded the altruism of people like me who cared about American Indians, anthropologists, but we didn't know what to do. We were part of the problem, not part of the solution. So he said, with the new inclusiveness, we're not gonna go with a reverse exclusionary policy. Anthropologists will always be welcome in the National Museum of the American Indian, but the rules of the road have changed. What Rick meant, repatriation and reburial, it's a revisiting of collections, not just this one, but collections across the country with inappropriate, quote, objects, including human remains. It's trying to make that right and work with tribes. It's part of the law, but it also goes far beyond that. Native American people are in museums of this country, including mine, in a way that we have never seen before. Some of it may be driven by repatriation, but it's opening up all sorts of doors. Exhibitions in this country, at those museums of natural history, controlled by anthropologists like me. No, we will never see those exhibits again conducted without not just a couple of informants coming in and talking about artifacts, but a legitimate consultation about what those exhibits ought to look like. Not only are we doing it, but we're welcoming it because it's giving us so much better museum, museum exhibits than the ones we had before. And it turns out the new inclusiveness cuts both ways. Anthropology has become, as I'm hinting here, much more welcoming of native people. Uh, we have, for 20 years now, a Native American scholarship fund that's making funding available. It's started by anthropologists like me signing over the royalties on our books about Indians to create a scholarship fund. If native people would like an experience to anthropology and archeology, span here's some assistance to do it. We now have programs all over the country tribal historic preservation officers, very modeled on, on the pattern of state historic preservation officers. We now have the first accredited American Indian Tribal Museum with the Seminoles of Florida. When I came on board in, in 1989, the board, we had in my field one practicing anthropologist who had a PhD. Now we have more than a dozen. 10 years from now, we'll have five dozen. What's happening here is a blurring of the lines between those people who were fighting before this institution started. There's an understanding, to, as Rick pointed out, the doors will be open to anthropologists, but the rules have changed. The doors are also open to native people, to 
to work with us and help make our anthropology a better place to live. The National Museum of the American Indian began as the museum different. It was different from natural history, it was different from anthropology, and it still is. The museum different quickly became something else. It became a museum of the native voice, not an anthropological voice, and it still is. The National Museum of the American Indian has evolved into a native civic space where Indian people come with great regularity. Sacred sites are, are worshiped here. There's a great deal that's happened that couldn't have been predicted, the anti-museum. So the National Museum of the American Indian is both a cause and an effect. And it's an end and it's a beginning. And because of the events that have transpired in building this place and operating this place, the world of natural history will never be the same. The world of anthropology will never be the same. And that's a good thing. Thank you.